Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Infinite complacency. People went to and fro the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, binning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. So on this edition of Into the Fray, I welcome back on with me author W.T. Watson, and you will know him quite well. Not only has he been on the main show a few times, but he's also been my guest over on Patreon. He has fiction and nonfiction works, and of course we cover a lot of the nonfiction here on Into the Fray. His books, nonfiction-wise, include Mysteries in the Mist, Phantom Black Dogs, Canadian Monsters and Mysteries, and then on this edition, we are going to be covering, of course, one of my favorite subjects, and that's Sasquatch. And the book, which is a bestseller, by the way, congratulations, WT, in several Amazon categories, is titled Sasquatch Canada Beyond British Columbia. Now, of course, you're published under Beyond the Fray Publishing. And when we're, you know, we're talking about subtitles, and I think that the subtitle you chose for this book was absolutely perfect. And you say this in the intro in this book is the fact that when you talk about Bigfoot in Canada, a lot of times it's focused in and around BC. And that is, of course, an extension, if you really want to look at the map, of the Pacific Northwest of Washington State here in the U.S. So it makes sense there's a lot of Bigfoot reports in British Columbia, right? But you do point out that there is plenty of other Bigfoot activity in the whole rest of the country of Canada. And that's what we we want to cover, of course, on this show, but that's what is, I mean, the book is rife with encounters from all over the place, and the encounters run the gamut as far as types. Absolutely. Hi, Shannon. Uh, nice to be back. You know, I chose the Beyond BC thing specifically because, you know, when you read Sasquatch books from the U.S., if they talk about Canada at all, 
you're going to be talking about British Columbia, uh, almost invariably. A couple of people, Lauren Coleman and some other people, have mentioned some Sasquatch sightings in places like Ontario. But it's not, you know, it's not commonly known that that Canada actually is a hot, you know, the entire place is is a hot spot for for Sasquatch sightings. I found sighting reports in every province in Canada except for Nunavut, which is up above the Arctic Circle. And you may have a couple of you may have a couple of reasons why there are no sightings from that area. Uh, one is that again, there's no cover there. It's very uh, it's not very densely forested like a lot of the rest of Canada. And the other is that the uh, the indigenous it's mostly indigenous people up in that area, and the indigenous people in general are reluctant to talk about this topic uh, with people outside of their own culture because. They have their particular beliefs about Sasquatch, and you know, unfortunately, people have made fun of those things in the past, and you know, they have been repressed over the course of history. So it's a little more difficult to get those sightings than it is for uh, for us to get sightings in other in other places. But um, there are, you know, Canada is just rife. <laughs> with uh, with Sasquatch. And so I wanted to bring that forward in this book. And I wanted to make sure that, that we presented a, a good uh, cross-section of, of sightings from all across uh, the, the Great White North. And, you know, I, I think I succeeded in doing that. I could have written a book that was probably two or three times the size of this one. I tried to be selective and prioritize stories and, and uh, you know, find interesting stories that people would be maybe most interested in reading about. But there's there's a lot more where that came from. And they're adding to them every week. Just this past week, there was a, there's been another uh, YouTube video that's been posted to the web of Sasquatch sighting up in, um, excuse me, up in Northern Ontario. Which looks, uh, you know, I I talk about how I don't really want to get into the whole analyzing video thing, but it looks pretty legit. Could be, could be the big guy. <laughs> now, in researching for this, and you pull from many different sources for this book, and I have to applaud you for that. Is the fact that there are so many reports out there? Did you come across any that were really close to home for you? Yeah, actually. <laughs> In the uh, the roadside sighting section of the book, there is a report from a, a couple of truckers who were driving through St. Catharines, Ontario, which is not far from where I'm sitting right now. I'm in Kitchener. I'm in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. Um, they were driving through St. Catharines, which is a city of 150-some thousand people, and spotted a Sasquatch uh, off the highway down in the St. Catharines area. You know, large, dark, bipedal, you know, the typical thing where uh, they talk about the stride of the the creature and how tall it was and so forth, so forth and so on. They were both shocked because they're in a, you know, they're in a city, basically, and they're driving along a a busy highway and they see this thing down in in one of the ditches. I talk about how even in my area. Uh, wildlife use the uh, the streams and uh, uh, other natural features of the land to move around, even in the more civilized areas of, of, of Canada. In the time that I've lived here, I've been here for uh, 
since 2020. In the time that I've lived here, you know, I've seen foxes, I've heard coyotes, I haven't actually seen them, but I've, I've heard them howling at night. And other, you know, I mean, there's just all kinds of wildlife that moves in and through those, these natural features like stream beds and so forth, which is where they saw this creature, including deer. There are plenty of Sasquatch sightings in which, you know, the big man is interested in in, uh, in deer. And, and there's actually a story we'll probably talk about here in a little bit where the Sasquatch was seen taking a deer. So it's possible that, you know, one of these critters followed uh, followed prey into a more civilized area. I would think that the hide-and-seek champion of the world, though, would, would think a little bit before actually wandering into a city of 150-some thousand people. <laughs> the other thing, too, is, you know, one of the things that people, particularly in the United States, don't seem to understand about Canada is that... Um, we have quite a lot smaller population than uh, than the U.S., and that con- that population is mostly concentrated along the U.S. border. I think something like ninety, somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of people in Canada live within 150 miles of the U.S. border. So you have vast swaths of wilderness area um, all throughout Canada. I can drive two hours north of where I'm sitting right now and be in wilderness, be in wilderness area. There's a a place not far from here, uh, Algonquin Provincial Park, uh, which is, you'll see mentioned several times in the book, sightings all around there. So, I mean, I'm not too far from Bigfoot Central. I did not realize that about the proliferation of people that close to the U.S. border. I had no idea about that. That makes a lot of sense why the big guy likes it up in the Great White North. Uh-huh. Yeah, because he's he's much less likely to run into to people up here. Um, and the people that he's likely to run into are people that might not even talk to you about him. There, there are a lot of uh, indigenous First Nations people, and I have a couple of uh, Citing reports from from those areas. Uh, there are a lot of those folks living, you know, in the more wild areas of Canada. Um, and there are some reports from those places. There was a, a RCMP report of you know Bigfoot actually walking into a you know, native village up in uh, forget exactly which which area of Canada it was in. Doing the typical Sasquatch things, walking around, you know, looking in windows, <laughs> very blasé about the whole thing, you know, and, and the people were fairly blasé about having the big guy wandering around in their village. Uh, they don't have the same kind of issue uh, with Sasquatch that, that, that other folks seem to have. Um, not that, you know, they don't have a lot of respect for these creatures, whatever they are, but they're not as uh, frequently not as terrified by them as as other people are. So uh, because they're part of their culture, they, you know, and I talk about that a little bit in the book where, you know, the native people up here, whether you're talking about the Pacific Northwest people where there's very much a whole Sasquatch culture all the way into the the uh, the Cree and the Inuk over on the eastern coast of, of Canada just accept that this this creature is you know is something that's out there. They don't necessarily see it as a 
you know, flesh and blood primate kind of creature, but uh, they definitely acknowledge that it exists and that it can take solid form. So it's really interesting to to study some of their, and I talk a little bit about this in the book. Of course, I, uh, Kathy Strain's written a whole book about this, but it's very interesting how they view Sasquatch as opposed to how some researchers do. Well, you brought up uh, Sasquatch taking a deer, and of course the first encounter uh, that I would like to cover is from a soldier on a training mission in 1983, and this occurred in Wainwright, Alberta. Uh, this is one of those. This is one of those um, incidents where you really have to look at the witness and go, "Okay, uh, I mean, you just can't ignore this. Th- this kind of uh, of witness. This is a, an individual who was before they." Uh, joined the Canadian Armed Forces was a uh, was a bow hunter, so they had spent a lot of time out in the woods. Then they joined the Canadian Forces, were actually uh, part of the Special Operations Group. So I, I don't know what what that would be analogous to in the states, but because um, they have slightly different mission uh, mission statements. But you know, I mean, you think of your Special Forces people in, in the United States are highly respected and they are, you know, accepted. You know, if they tell you they saw something, they saw something. Uh, <laughs> so this fellow's a special operator. He was on a training mission in Wainwright, Alberta. Um, he also had a, I guess, a subspecialty in electronics. And he and his partner were out looking for some piece of electronics that they were supposed to repair. Now, this is back in the good old days before um, before GPS, you know, where you had turn-by-turn GPS and you just kind of follow the, the instructions from the little computer, right? So they are trying to find this piece of equipment that they're supposed to repair using map coordinates, which anybody who's done orienteering knows that sometimes it can be a, a, a little bit, you know, I mean, you can get close to where you need to be and you can get real close if you're really good at it, but there's always a little margin for error when you're trying to orient using the map and compass. So these guys were driving a, a camouflage pickup truck. They pulled off to the side of the road. The, uh, the driver had spread their map across the hood of the car. And uh, and this fellow was standing and kind of, uh, you know, letting his his buddy do his thing, trying to figure out where they were going. He's looking off 20, 30 yards to a, a break in the in the forest where they were, because, you know, they're in, in, in dense woodland. Almost every place in Canada is dense woodland. I mean, all you have to do is walk out the door and you're in dense woodland. And, uh, you know, so he's looking off and he sees deer out in the um out in the break and he's watching the steer and he's thinking, Oh wow, that's yeah, there he's you know, he's a hunter and he's thinking to himself, wow, there's so there's things up here I could hunt. He's about to say something to his partner when he sees movement in the bush. And as he's standing there, in a split second, this creature which he describes as being built like a linebacker. I mean, he's, he's, he was very impressed with the physicality of this, this being. Starts off on all fours, charges, comes to two legs, grabs this deer, breaks its neck, slings it over his shoulder, and disappears into the brush in 
just like a heartbeat. He said it happened so fast, he didn't even have a chance to say anything to his partner. So his partner didn't even know this is, this had happened, right? You know, and he's, he's thinking to himself, geez, oh, Pete, what was that? And he's like, I didn't say anything because I didn't want them throwing me out of the military because I was nuts, right? But he's, he, he likened this, this movement of this creature to a time when he was in Africa and he had watched cheetah hunting gazelle. Uh, it moved that fast. And it was into the clearing, had the deer, and out of the clearing before he could even speak. So <laughs> that, to me, is a really good witness statement. Because not only do you have a guy who's trained to observe, but, but he's telling a story that, again, has cross-references to who knows how many witness statements you know, throughout the United States and probably in Canada as well. So I was I was very impressed with that particular uh, story and gave it kind of pride of place in the Alberta section of the book. Yeah, that one really stood out to me. Not only the fact that the, who the witness was, but this guy essentially had three lightning strikes in one encounter because, first of all, he's seeing a Bigfoot. And to him, mm-hmm. he knows it's a Bigfoot. It can't be anything else. Boom, there's lightning strike number one. Number two is he gets to see it running quadrupedally. You don't get a lot of people that get to see that. And then number three, he gets to watch it acquiring its lunch. So I, I just, that one yeah. really stood out to me big time. Yeah, it's just, yeah, like you said, there's there's the, the lightning strikes and there's just the, you know, there's something about the account itself that just feels so real that you're like, yeah, you know, that happened. <laughs> there's no way that did not happen. <laughs> so that, that's probably... Of all the accounts in the book, that one really, really stuck out in my mind, too. I was hoping you'd pick that one. So you great minds think alike then. Because, yeah, that one stood out to me right away. I'm like, oh, that's going on the list right now. Yeah. I, I wonder how yeah, many. Buddy. Yeah, I would just wonder how many people that guy told. Because now not only does he have this story, but of because of his career and his job position, it adds another another wrench in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, the problem and this is something that you see over and over and over again. And it, it doesn't, it's not just Sasquatch. You know, I mean, obviously Sasquatch is very popular. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff going on about Sasquatch these days. But uh, in, in all paranormal counters, there's always that ridicule factor. You know, it, throughout the book, for instance, I, I tell story after story after story of people who, you know, actually said something about their encounter and people are just ah now you saw a bear and one of the things that you hear from witnesses over and over and over again is that wasn't a bear i know what a bear looks like i know how a bear moves this thing didn't look like a bear and it didn't move like a bear you know Bears don't walk around on their hind legs like that. I mean, they can get up on their hind legs, but they don't walk smoothly and efficiently on their hind legs. You know, so you hear this over and over again, you know, but it's so easy for people to just go, ah, yeah, you know, you saw a bear. Because particularly up here in Canada, there's bears everywhere. (laughs) I mean, chances are, if you hang out in the woods long enough, you're going to see a bear. But there's a big difference between a bear and a Bigfoot. And, you know, there 
but it's, it's, it's only the people who've actually seen these creatures who seem to get that. So I, yeah, <laughs> that's my rant for today. You're allowed to rant as much as you want. Yeah. And in fact, and just a side note here, talking about picking, you know, that, that encounter and that story, these that we're going to cover today are just a drop in the bucket of what is in oh, yeah. this book. So just so everyone knows that there was a, it was a tough choice for, for these five stories. I'll just say that right now. So well done on that one. WT. So I don't honestly know how many stories there are in the book. I didn't actually count them up, but I know that I have, you know, cause I use one note to, to organize my, my sightings and stuff, my incidents, and, and start to form chapters and stuff to get organized to put a book together. I've got, uh, I'm, I'm going to say easily over 150, 200 stories uh, listed in, in my, in my research notes. Not all of those made it into the book, but I mean, that just gives you an idea. And that's, I'm sure there are others. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Those were, I was looking primarily for what, uh, you know, BFRO and other organizations call class A sightings, where somebody actually saw something. So, you know, that pairs things down a little bit. But even then, I got well over 100 sightings out of Canada between books and, and different sighting databases and so forth. It just gives you an idea how prevalent these creatures are up here. Now you brought up the BFRO and the, mm -hmm. in, in two more encounters, we're going to cover one that is included in your book from the BFRO. And then the last one we're going to cover is from Al, uh, Alberta Sasquatch. I assume that's their website, mm -hmm. right? Now, yes. does Alberta Sasquatch also split things up a little bit like the BFRO where they have, it's a class A or a class one, whatever, and somebody actually saw a Bigfoot? Yeah, basically what they did, instead of, you know, saying class A, class B, da, 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 they, they just put the, um, they have a little header, uh, witness sights Sasquatch walking across street or whatever which kind of gives you an idea. So there's, there's a little more um, labor intensive going through their, their database and looking for visual sightings, but it wasn't hard. You know, you just had to read the, the headers. So yeah. they didn't actually do, I don't think a classification. Now I could be wrong. They may have, have their own way of doing it, but uh, I just went through and looked at the headers in their, in their, their database and, and looked at the, the sightings that were visual sightings. 
So this next one comes from John Worm's uh, Strange Creatures Seldom Seen, and this is Carrie's account. This one is pretty mm-hmm. fascinating, and it, it reminds me of other stories that have actually hit the mainstream. I'm sure it did for you as well. Oh, yeah. And again, I absolutely, I talked about John Worm's uh, book when I was promoting for Canadian Monster Mysteries back a little while ago. If you're interested in weird things that happen in Canada, this is a book you have to put on your list. He's done, he's an author out of Manitoba. I didn't find out that he is still running around doing his thing. I haven't had any communication with him, but uh, he, he's still active presence on social media and so forth. So, but that book, there's all kinds of, of really interesting cryptozoological stuff in it. So if you're interested in the strange things that might be wandering around the wilderness in Canada, it's definitely a book you should read. Worms is unique in that he seems to have had a real in into the indigenous community in Manitoba because almost all of the sightings in that book are from native people, uh, which is really unusual. And this particular sighting or story actually came to him from a woman named Carrie. If I recall, let's see, Carrie was uh, from the Dauphin Lake Ojibwe Nation. Yeah, a Dauphin River. That's right. The incident actually took place in the early 1960s. Carrie was somewhere between 11 and 12. So you got to understand People in some of these indigenous communities live in pretty primitive circumstances. A lot, some of the uh, the First Nations reserves don't even have, you know, like running water, so they actually have to haul water from streams and so forth up to the house. That's not so much the case nowadays, or they're they're starting to improve things anyway. But there, it is still true uh, of some communities out in the, the the wilder areas of Canada. In this case, in, in Carrie's case, uh, she was going down to the river uh, with the buckets to bring water back to the house. And along the way, uh, the berries were in season, and she decided that she was going to go and uh, pick herself some cranberries. Now, Carrie made two mistakes. For all of you people out there who have any experience with search and rescue, she made two mistakes. One, she wandered off the beaten path. She wandered away from an area that she was familiar with. And two, when she realized she was lost, she ran. You know, 11, 12-year-old girl, uh, 11, 12-year-old anybody, it's very understandable that they might panic in that circumstance and do something dumb. And, And she really did. She ran and ran and ran and ran. And really, just in a panic. Uh, with her hands in front of her face, you know, trees swiping her in the face and so forth, crying, terrified the entire way. And so she really feels sorry. You feel for her as you read this story because she obviously was in, in, in great straits. Eventually, she ran out of steam and ended up laying down in, in, in you know, a mossy area, tried to sleep. But of course, she she grew up in that area. She knew what was out in those woods. And there are large, not just the, the, the black bears, but there are the larger brown bears out in those woods. 
And she was terrified that she was going to get eaten by a bear. So she didn't get much sleep. And for the next several days, uh, this pattern kind of repeated itself. She kept moving. She kept running. She kept trying to find the edge of the forest, hoping she could find her way out. And, and, you know, this is the worst thing you can do when you're lost, because if people are looking for you, if you keep moving, it makes you that much harder to find. So, you know, for all of you folks listening out there, please, if you find that you don't know where you are, sit down. I mean, nowadays with the advent of cell phones and and these emergency unit things and stuff like that, you know, there are all kinds of ways that you can be found. And even if you aren't trackable by cell phone or whatever, there are there are volunteers out there that are more than willing to come and look for you and they will, they will find you, you know, but you have to make it easier for them to find you. So that's my, my advertisement for search and rescue. Uh, I used to be a volunteer doing that stuff. And it's, it's really, it's really important that people know that. So Carrie's, you know, she's having a, a bad time. She's lost. She's wandering aimlessly in the woods She's getting scratched up and banged up and beat up and bruised. And after several days of this, um, she is, even though she has thought to stop and eat berries off of bushes, so she's had some sustenance, she's getting weaker, which is typically what happens when, uh, when this kind of thing happens. Um, it's nighttime, and her worst nightmares is coming true. She hears something heavy moving through the brush. And there's a funny scene in in the book where, you know, she basically just says grandfather, which is a a term of respect. You know, I I know that you're coming to eat me. So please, you know, just eat me head first and get it over. (laughs) But nothing happens. Uh, Whatever this large thing is in the the forest doesn't come any closer to her. And, uh, you know, she's very puzzled by this. So she starts talking. And basically, she tells her story. She tells whatever it is in the woods that she's lost and she's afraid she's never going to see her parents again. And she's terrified. And she's sure that whatever it is is going to eat her. She goes on, you know, at length about this for for some time. She's speaking in her native tongue, which is Ojibwe. And whatever it is comes out of the woods. And she can't see clearly what she's dealing with, but she suddenly realizes that this might not be a bear. And it's actually close enough for her to touch it. Now you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, you know, how come she can't tell that she's standing next to a Sasquatch? It's like, it gets really dark in those woods, folks. Uh, One of the things that she noticed that she noted in the story was how dark it was even during the daytime under the cover of all these trees. So at night, it's pitch black out there. Yeah. It's not like she's able to light a fire or anything like that. This thing gets close enough for her to touch and she lays a hand on it and uh, she describes it as being like a a beaver pelt, uh, which is is interesting because beavers have very thick, uh, luxuriant pelts. They were hunted for fur for a long time and uh, beaver fur coats were much in demand uh, back in the early 20th century. Uh, She touches this Thing, and then she takes her hand away. As soon as she takes her hand away, the, the, the creature bumps her. And she's like, oh, wait a minute. Now it's going to eat me. I'm, I'm sure it's going to eat me. But it doesn't. She gets up. She puts her hand back on it. And 
it starts to, to, to move in a particular direction. And every time she takes her hand off this creature and tries to go in another direction, it basically herds her. Uh, it'll bump her back in the direction it wants her to go. Um, so if she's walking along with this, this, whatever it is, bumping her to the left, bumping her to the right, getting her to go in a particular direction. And as the sun comes up, she realizes what it is she's following. And of course, she's terrified because, uh, you know, there's this giant, hairy, bipedal creature walking along kind of next to her, guiding her through the forest. And she, of course, knows about these creatures from her culture. And, you know, they have kind of a mixed reputation. If you've ever read Kathy Strain's book on on uh, Sasquatch stories in, in native culture, they they're either forest guardians or they snatch children and eat them. You know, um, there's the, the strange dichotomy about how native people see the Sasquatch. Uh, this particular Sasquatch, though, fades off into the woods and, and, and peeks at her from behind trees. And eventually they seem to come to some kind of a rapprochement and, and the creature continues guiding her out of the woods. Eventually, that's exactly what happens is uh, they come to a, a cut in the forest that she recognizes as um, a place where uh, the tribe had cut down some trees in order to make an airfield, uh, which is one of the ways that you can get supplies in and out in these really remote regions in Canada. She knows where she is and she's like, aha, you know, she runs out into the middle of this clearing. And, and of course, the creature fades back into the into the forest just disappears completely, right? She runs out to, runs down this, this clearing, finds the road, and this uh, older uh, native person is, is driving his trek along and, and picks her up. And she tells him that she's been following this great big bear that walks on two legs and has very long arms. And, uh, and the grandfather just laughs at her and says, oh, you're very blessed to have been guided out of the forest by this creature. And uh, he takes her home because, of course, everybody knows everybody. So he knows exactly who she belongs to. He takes her home. Her parents are a little iffy about believing this story about a Sasquatch guiding her out of the woods. But, you know, it's part of their culture. And eventually... Uh, you know, and her her siblings, of course, give her crap about it. You know, she becomes known as as the girl who touched the bear. <laughs> but eventually, her her father tells her a story about how when he was lost in the woods when he was young, one of these creatures had actually supplied him with fish until he could find his way out. So I, I find it really interesting. Like I said, that if you read Kathy Strain's book, there's there seems to be these these two streams of thinking in uh, in native amongst native people uh, where they you know on the one hand see this creature as a threat that actually you know kidnaps people out of the village and you know in worst case scenarios is actually cannibalistic right and on the other hand there are these guardians of the forest who if they're treated respectfully will assist you so this is definitely one of those stories about, uh, you know, a Sasquatch that was willing to assist somebody and, and save this little girl, probably save this little girl's life. Because, um, you know, I, I mean, being lost in the, in the Canadian wilderness, it's only a matter of time before exposure gets you. 
you know, even in the summertime, in some areas, uh, it can get pretty cold at night. So I'm sure that this creature probably saved her life. Yeah, that one immediately reminded me of little uh, Casey in North Carolina, the the Mm three-year-old. He was missing for three days, and it was freezing cold, and he said a bear looked after him. And everyone's like, bear took care of him, yeah. bear took care of you. Now, you know, he's three, so maybe he just didn't know what a Bigfoot was or is, and that's all he could think of. But, um, you know, if he made that story up just completely out of thin air it's it's kind of strange now that you didn't say the bear led him out so that part is definitely different because that sasquatch and carrie's encounter chose to as you say save her life but it immediately reminded me of of casey's story Hmm. oh yeah 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 and it's very evident from spending any time doing research in in sasquatch lore that these creatures, for whatever reason, are really curious about us. And they're particularly curious about kids. Um, we'll come across the Traverse Pine Gorilla a little later, and he gets himself into trouble peeping into windows, watching kids in, in cabins. We saw, saw that behavior in that one RCMP story that I was talking about earlier, where the Sasquatch wandered into the village and it was looking in people's windows. And we see that behavior not only with Sasquatch, but also with Dogman, which is really scary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's scary enough seeing a giant bipedal primate apish type of, of creature peering in your window. It's it's a, another level of scary when something with a dog's head looks in your window. And the first thing you think of is werewolf. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, what window was it looking into? Oh, the second story window that's about 12, 13 feet off the ground. You're like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or eight feet off the ground or Mm, whatever. Yeah. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. That's a whole nother level of of no thank you. Well, yeah, this next one comes out of the Saskatchewan area. And this is BFRO report 12733. Yeah, this was... um, you know, as you said, Saskatchewan, which is not known for lots of cover, a good portion, probably half the province is prairie, but there is is mountains. This particular um, sighting takes place in an area that's kind of mixed terrain. There's some forest land, there's marshes, there's, uh, you know, other terrain. And uh, the individual was out duck hunting. And the really interesting thing about this story is he was out, he was duck hunting. He was, uh, you know, going to one of his favorite spots for, for bagging, bagging ducks. I was walking along the field that he was walking through was freshly cut. And there was a bunch of, you know, plant matter laying around the field. As he's walking along, he, he sees something white uh, underneath one of these piles of, of plant material. And when he lifts this, this plant matter away, from what it was he saw, he finds a lump of dead terns. Uh, a tern is a type of seabird. It's a think seagull. It's a, a kind of a large seagull. And he finds seven of these things, all dead as a doorstop, and they're packed together in what he described as a big lump. But they didn't seem to show any signs of, uh, you know, external any external signs of injury. So he wasn't sure why they were dead, but there they were, and they were packed together in a big lump and hidden under a pile of plant matter. So, I mean, 
he didn't think a whole lot of this. Uh, you know, it was kind of unusual, but he wasn't completely freaked out about it or anything like that. Uh, he figured that some raccoon had somehow managed to stash these birds for, for, for a snack later. So he, he goes on to his hunting site. He has considerable success. He, he gets several ducks. But it starts to rain, and he decides that he'd better get out while he can get out. And as it happens, he promptly gets his truck stuck in the mud. So he uh, gets out of the truck, and you know he's going to go see if he can find help. He's making his way along the road. After well, he followed a trail uh, away from his truck, got himself onto a road. He's walking along. It's raining. His head is down. <laughs> you know. Well, you can imagine he's he's not feeling you know in charity with the world at that particular time. Uh, but as he's walking, he catches he catches a flash of movement out of in his peripheral vision, and he actually describes the event like this. He says, "I saw something. It didn't seem really tall, but I was a couple of hundred yards away from it. But it was big. I mean, real big, wide across the shoulders." No neck, just like a big giant head sitting on huge shoulders and short little legs and long arms. It was moving extremely fast, but not running. So this thing was headed down a ditch into a little valley. But what really freaked this fellow out was that this being had to have crossed the road in front of him. And he didn't see it initially until it got into his peripheral vision off to the side because his head was down. So he may have walked within feet of the thing and never even known it. Uh, when he went back to the area to, um, to look around, he finds one of, those, one of those mystery footprints, right? He's like, he finds a single footprint, just one, which always makes you wonder. It's like, why just one footprint? If you know the Sasquatch is as big as it is, and it's tromping along in the mud, you'd think it'd leave a whole string of footprints, right? Finds one footprint, 16 inches long, five to six inches wide. He noted that the creature was a dark brownish, reddish color. So he puts, the witness puts two and two together and says, geez, I wonder if those turns were actually a food stash, you know, and if the Sasquatch had been coming back to get to, to pick up its, its food stash and discover this, this interloper wandering around in its area. Now, this story kind of gave me pause for a couple of reasons. You know, one is the weird thing with the, the turns. That's, that's like, okay, well, how's the Sasquatch bagging birds? You know, is it, is it ambush predating birds as well? I would think that an animal that big would need something bigger to eat. Maybe it needs to gather a whole bunch of turds to have a meal. The other thing is the single footprint. Like I said, it's like, why just one footprint? We know that there are instances where Sasquatch leave trackways, right? We also know there are instances where Sasquatch leave trackways that disappear in the middle of cornfields. <laughs> There's something weird about this critter that we'll probably end up talking about later. So we wonder if the Sasquatch was coming back to, uh, to, to snag those turns and go off and have a you know, midday meal or, or what its motivation was. But 
again, as so often happens, he sees this thing, it crosses the road, it goes and, and disappears into the valley uh, away from him. It, but, you know, again, this is not a, a heavy cover area uh, like you would have up in the boreal forests in, you know, northern Ontario and, and places like that. Um, this is Saskatchewan. And we weren't up in the real heavily wooded areas of Saskatchewan. So there's a, a video of a what might be a Sasquatch that was taken Raven. I'm thinking Raven, Saskatchewan, something like that, where this thing just is walking off the road into, you know, down into a gully that's got some tree cover, but it's surrounded by prairie. It's like, and, and it makes you pause because, you know, these guys, again, hide-and-seek champion, you'd think they wouldn't be wandering around in open areas. But then Sasquatches are seen in places like Arizona, uh, which doesn't have a whole lot of cover until you get up into the mountains. So, again, made me wonder. Yeah, and as you say, I'm sitting here reading this, and I'm going, well, I would, much like the the soldier in the very first encounter that we talked about out of Alberta, he got to see how that Sasquatch procured his lunch. And I'm going, how did this one do it? Did he sneak up on them? Did he throw rocks at them and knock them out or kill them that way? Because we've heard of other stories where these guys seem to have great aim when they need to. Yeah, you know, the whole, the whole rock throwing thing, you know, I I did a whole section of the book about the the whole rock throwing thing, and and we're not you you don't see too many stories where people actually see Sasquatch throwing rocks. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somebody somewhere out there has seen them throwing rocks, um, but again, yeah, how are they how are they bagging these turns? Yeah, I mean, again, this creature seems to be really intelligent. So I don't put it past them to be able to hunt birds. If you're going to hunt birds, why not just take them off into the woods with you? Why leave them in a ball in the middle of a field somewhere? Uh, it's just another one of those puzzling things that, that we run across when we explore the lore of these guys. Yeah, I wonder if maybe the, the lump was kept in the marsh, maybe in, in the watery area to keep them, uh, I mean more refrigerated i i don't know yeah that seems very odd about the placement of the birds yeah i i just thought that was really strange you know unless the other possibility is that you know the sasquatch saw had other people intruding in the area or something and and hid these for later you know there's we tend to assign you know our our kind of human uh ideas about this creature's behavior and we could be completely off base for all we know you know a ball of seven dead turns is some kind of a ritual sacrifice for sasquatches or something i i have no idea we just don't know that's one of the things that makes this such a fascinating study is there's such a mystery to it that's why they're just so darn fun to talk about yeah up next we've got the traverse spine gorilla out of labrador so uh, let me read you a little quote here uh, that comes out of uh, Elliot Merritt's book, uh, True North. Um, he's talking about the footprint of this creature, which is one of the unusual things about the Traverse Spine Gorilla. It says it's a strange looking foot, about 12 inches long, narrow at the heel, 
and forking in the front into two broad round-ended toes. Sometimes its print was so deep that it looked to weigh 500 pounds. Now, okay, primates don't come with two toes. So, so we know that you know, we're, we're encountering something unusual here. Uh, one of the things that, that throws primatologists for a loop when they start, if, if they can be persuaded to look at Sasquatch evidence, is these occasional footprints that come out with toes other than five. Primates are supposed to have five toes. That's, that's the way it works. But we see six-toed Sasquatch sometimes. We see three-toed Sasquatch. I think it was the Falk monster that left uh, three-toed prints. You know, everybody doesn't dispute that these creatures are actually Sasquatch or what they call Bigfoot down south, but they can't account for why these creatures are leaving these strange footprints. This critter had some odd, other odd behaviors as well. So this happened in, in 1913 in a uh, settlement called Traverse Spine, uh, which is in Labrador. Kind of, you want to talk about the Great White North. We're up in the Great White North there. And the creature, as I said, because of its appearance, came to be known as the Traverse Spine Gorilla because that's what it looked like. Looked like, you know, it was a strange man-like being. Had long dangling arms. One of the witnesses said that it had a crest of white hair on top of its head that reminded it uh, reminded her of a Roman centurion's helmet. Uh, the white hair gave me pause because there was also a, uh, a Sasquatch in, in uh, northern Ontario that was called Old Yellowtop for precisely the same reason, because that particular Sasquatch or its its genetic relatives had sort of blonde hair on the top of their heads. So kind of a, a, a another little oddity from Canada. But um, so the story starts in, in autumn of 1913 and seems to kind of revolve around a family called Michelin, which is probably not how they actually pronounce it. A lot of French speakers up here, so I'm not sure exactly how that would be pronounced in French. But girl was outside in the autumn. She was playing uh, by herself near the settlement, somewhere close to her parents' cabin. And she spies this weird creature in the woods. Uh, again, you know, long dangling arms, the strange mane of hair that looked like a Roman centurion's helmet. But the weird thing about this is that the witness claimed that the creature grinned at her and made a hand motion like it was trying to draw the girl closer. Well, fortunately, the girl had some sense. She screamed around for the cabin. And when people came out to investigate, they found these weird tracks that I was talking about earlier. As so often happens in these stories from the early 1900s, a group of men with rifles went off looking for this thing. They tried to ambush it. They set bear traps for it. And this, you know, this being whatever it was, was more than intelligent enough to avoid their traps and, and, and to avoid them. But they did find more tracks in areas uh you know, throughout the forest where trees had been stripped of bark and logs had been uprooted and so forth. So the gorilla stayed around Traverse Spine for about two winters. And here's another thing about Sasquatches that we see a lot that uh, seems to be a particular thing. They don't like dogs and dogs don't like them. 
this particular Sasquatch, if that's what it was, went to the, the trouble of actually driving some of the local dogs into the river. So it was, and it seemed to take great pleasure in harassing the local canines. And the people in the area were just not happy with this critter because it kept disturbing their dogs. The dogs would be up barking and growling in the night. Of course, you know, you're trying to sleep, you know, life in, in, uh, in those areas would have been really difficult. Uh, as it was, and not getting any sleep at night didn't make things any easier. So again, the, the Michelins were seemed to be kind of at the epicenter of this whole set of sightings. And the second sighting at this house produced uh, even more fun. Again, we see the window peeping behavior. This this creature came and was looking in the window of, the, of their, their cabin. One of the kids spotted it and started screaming. Now, mom wasn't having this. She just wasn't having this. She grabs her shotgun and heads out the door. And the creature is is disappearing into a clump of willow trees. She opens fire on this thing and actually seems, uh, you know, she says that she hit it. Um, she had that, that meaty thud uh, sound that you get when you actually hit something. And again, you know, we have a scientist who says, I know what this was. Guy named Bruce Wright was talking with uh, with Mrs. Mitchell in many years after the events in, in 1947, and he told her that he thought that she saw a, a rare barren ground grizzly bear, and she laughed in his face. And I'd like to read this quote because I just love it. It was no bear. I've killed twelve myself, and I know their tracks well. And I saw enough of this thing to be sure of that. I fired a shotgun at it and heard the shot hit. My little girl was playing behind the house and she came running in saying that it was chasing her. I grabbed the shotgun, went outside just in time to get a glimpse of it disappearing in the bush. <laughs> so if a woman who's killed 12 bears tells you that what she was looking at and what she shot at wasn't a bear, guess what? I'm going to believe her. And, and you can take your scientific material itself and go somewhere else. <laughs> You know, there seems to be a little confusion about which sighting was which in this one. But the fact remains that something caused Mrs. Mitchellin to run out of the house with a shotgun and shoot at this thing. And, you know, I mean, she's giving an account of the shooting later on, so she may have gotten her two stories juxtaposed. But regardless, the other interesting thing about this is that, uh, again, they tried to track this thing. And again, it's leaving these weird, weird footprints, even though they were described as barefoot and ape-like. They would sometimes find, you hear Sasquatch researchers now talk about nests. You know, they find these nests in the, in the forest, right? They're talking about finding nests here uh, as they follow the tracks. And whatever this thing was, it went over obstructions that humans would have to go around. So it was big, whatever it was. So, you know, again, there was something strange stalking the people of Traverse Pine. Now, there's some argument about whether it was a Sasquatch or not. And I'm perfectly willing to hear other people's thoughts on that. I think you had a guest on not too long ago who had another theory about the Traverse Pine gorilla, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> But I almost put this sighting in the weird stuff category because of the strange behavior of 
uh, of the Sasquatch when it encountered this girl. It acted almost like a human trying to lure somebody into the woods, which is not behavior we typically see from Sasquatch that people see, you know, up in the Pacific Northwest or whatever. Um, I was kind of reminded of the whole Osman story where, you know, Bigfoot just basically gathers somebody up and walks away with them. And I wonder if that's not what this creature was trying to do for whatever reason. Um, and the other thing that made this one a, a strange one was the two-toed tracks. I mean, again, primates don't make two-toed tracks. That's that's not a thing. <laughs> so we we don't know what this was exactly. The descriptions seem to indicate that it was a Sasquatch, but uh, there's there's some doubt about that. Well, and this, as you say earlier, is us trying, or me, I should say, probably trying to anthropomorphize a Bigfoot. But the other thing that stuck out was, besides it trying to beckon to her with its hand and fingers, it also seemed to smile. Of course, um, mm -hmm. I've heard Will Jevening a million times talk about the whole gorilla lip flip, and that's actually a sign of aggression. But when you have, made, if this was a Sasquatch, we're assuming they're very smart. Could it have learned that a smile is supposed to be something good and positive? And it, it paired it and married it with this, what seems to me to be a very nefarious action, it, trying to beckon this girl out into the woods. That's the first thing that came to my mind. But, of course, it could be way off. Yeah, I mean, again... Like I know, like I mentioned previously, uh, you know, in, in native lore, they're kind of divided half and half about you know this creature being a a forest protector or tribal protector or stealing women and children from camps. So, you know, this particular Sasquatch, who knows? The thing that we do know, if this creature is is a flesh and blood animal, it's awfully awfully good at not being found and that in and of itself indicates a really high level of intelligence so we don't know what nefarious purpose it might have with you know taking a human child into the woods i don't care to conjecture on that because i have nothing to to base a conjecture on but you know it may have learned behaviors that assisted it in doing whatever it was that it wanted to be doing. And that, to me, makes this story superbly creepy. And by the way, it's like you're supposed to watch out for dads with shotguns. I would watch out for mama in that story, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, mom nailed that critter. <laughs> man, I'd feel bad for the, the girl's first boyfriend when she brings him home, you know. It's like, forget dad. Yeah. You got to watch out for mom over here. Yeah, yeah. Now, Beware of mom. In, in Sasquatch Canada, WT, you were not afraid to include some encounters that, of course, have a strange element to them. And a lot of times, and I think people are getting more and more comfortable to share these kinds of encounters and sightings, a lot of times you can't get away with talking about Bigfoot without at least mentioning some of the strange things that come along with them. And you weren't afraid to put those in the book. And, of course, I wanted to pick one of these kind of stranger ones. And this was procured from Alberta Sasquatch, their website, and this was report number 041. Yeah, so I have long theorized 
that Sasquatch is something more than a, than a flesh and blood creature, or at least some Sasquatch are. I have a whole conclusion to this book that talks about both and thinking. Yeah, I am entirely comfortable with the idea that there could be an unknown primate wandering the forests of North America. I'm entirely comfortable with that. And, you know, there may come a day when somebody brings a body into to, to the uh, to the scientists and this becomes a classified creature and so on and so forth. But that doesn't explain some of the weird crap that happens around these creatures. So at least some of these sightings have an element of high strangeness to them that we just can't explain. And again, I go into considerable theorizing at the end of the book about why that is and what happens and those kinds of things. But the thing I want people to take away from this is you can believe that Sasquatch is a flesh and blood animal. And you can believe that there's something weird going on. And those two beliefs do not have to oppose each other. We don't have to engage in either or thinking because this is just too strange a topic to, you know, try to draw like a, a set conclusion. We just don't know at this point in time. And we may never know. That's why it's a mystery. I like mysteries. They keep life interesting. So in, in this particular case, we're talking August of 1972. This witness uh, was a child uh, at the time. And this is another one of those things that one of my pet peeves is that people have this tendency to uh, discard childhood observations. You know, oh, well, it's just a kid. I think that's just grossly unfair, it, it, particularly in a, in a, a situation where a child has had a, a, an observation of something, of Sasquatch or any of the paranormal things that has been traumatizing. The child needs to be believed and uh, and worked with and not told, oh, it was just a dream or, you know, you saw a bear or whatever. It's just so easy for us to fob kids stuff off as, oh, it was just your imagination. Well, maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. And I, I really think that children need to get more credit for being able to observe things and report things and tell you what they saw. and for people to be able to believe that. So this incident occurred in Strathcona Island Park in uh, Medicine Hat, Alberta, which is one of the things I love about Canada is we got great place names. We've got places like Medicine Hat and Moose Jaw and um, other really uh, colorfully named places. There's a, a place in Yukon called Yellowknife. Just love the names up here. And there are a lot of, obviously, uh, indigenous names as well. So this witness and his family were visiting this park, and they were having a family picnic. You know, it was a wonderful, wonderful day. It's August, so it's warm for a change. They'd gone to the river, and they were swimming. And about 1.30, the family decided that they were going to go back to the campsite, which is about 150 yards from where they were. And... This young witness took off like a bolt um, into the woods because he wanted to claim the first hot dog. So he was well ahead of the group. As often happens in a Sasquatch sighting, his first uh, indication that there was something strange going on was, a, a, was an odor. 
down in Florida, they call them skunk apes for a reason. Um, a lot of times uh, you will find that uh, there is that terrible smell that accompanies the Sasquatch. In this case, the, the boy described it as a, like a newly washed dog that had been rolling in garbage for a week. So the witness uh, heard a movement off to his right. He turns and looks and he sees this large black and red furred back at a range of about 30 feet. So he was close to this thing. He wasn't quite sure what he was looking at, uh, but whatever it was, it was squatting and he could see its buttocks uh, just like inches from the ground. We were talking about, uh, or I guess we weren't talking about, but uh, I might mention that berries play a big role in, in uh, Sasquatch sightings up here. There are probably, I would venture to say three or four sightings in the book that have to do with, with berries. And that's just, that's my estimation. In this case, the, the being that this boy was looking at was hunched over a bush of uh, Saskatoon berries. And, you know, was was squatting down and having a snack. I mean, just very obviously. Whatever this thing was, it, it was huge. Because the witness says that even though it was squatting, it was still easily five feet high and probably four feet across. And again, had the cone-shaped head, you know, that sat directly on its shoulders. You know, very, very classic Sasquatch, right? Um, so, you know, you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, you know, this is like any other Sasquatch report we've heard. You know, the kid is wandering through the forest and he sees this thing and it's eating berries. And so what? Then the story takes a turn for the weird. The witness thinks to himself, what am I looking at? And in his mind, he hears, you don't see me, I'm not here. The witness is like, wait a minute, what, what am I looking at? And again, he hears in his mind, you don't see me, I'm not here. So this happens twice. And then the Sasquatch starts to make this weird chattering noise. I, when I heard this description, I immediately thought of the samurai chatter in, in, in the Sierra sounds. And the witness suddenly is, is just filled uh, with the thought that he needs to leave, that he needs to get out of there right away. So he takes off, runs back to the campsite, and the Sasquatch goes off in the opposite direction, headed for a nearby creek. So, you know, the boy is like, okay, well, I just encountered this really weird thing in the woods. And his family's, you know, they pull out the standard, the, the, the good old standard you saw bear. He's like, um, no, this didn't look like any bear I'd ever seen before. And uh, some, you know, so then the family starts joking with him and saying, telling him that he'd seen a Sasquatch. He didn't even know what a Sasquatch was. Okay. So, this was not, you know, some kid who'd been watching in search of or whatever and, and decided that he saw a Sasquatch. He had no idea what a Sasquatch was until somebody explained it to him. And then he was like, yeah, yeah, that must be what I saw. So, you know, a lot of researchers reading that final part where, you know, the, the creature chatters at him and, and he flees. He's filled with this, this thought that he needs to leave. You know, a lot of researchers now would pull out the infrasound uh, explanation, and that may be true. 
you know, I, I, I don't know. But infrasound doesn't explain how this witness received a mind-to-mind transmission uh, from the Sasquatch and how the Sasquatch told him very specifically, you don't see me, I'm not here. Now, when I think about this, you know, it sounds a whole lot like this Sasquatch was trying to manipulate him psychically. And in fact, you have to wonder if, you know, some of these people who wander into the forest and have missing time aren't actually, you know, not being abducted by aliens, but actually ran into a Sasquatch who actually successfully wiped the memory from their minds. Um, Now, I know I'm getting into watcher there, but, you know, when you start to talk about these things and you start to talk about the stranger things, anything's possible, right? So, but in any event, this boy had a direct telepathic communication with the Sasquatch. And that's not something that flesh and blood researchers are going to be able to easily explain. That does make me wonder, like you said, is this a failed attempt at a memory wipe situation? Because why just say that, that very specific sentence if he then just ran to camp and said, oh, I, I saw this weird thing. And the other thing that, that makes me wonder is, is, you know, how many people have actually seen these creatures and then just not remembered it? They wandered into the woods. They saw a Sasquatch. The Sasquatch just looked at him and said, you don't see me. I'm not here. And they don't even remember it. It's like I talk about uh, a roadside sighting where um, a young man is, uh, is sitting in the back of his family's Cadillac. And this, again, happened in Ontario. Um, and he, they're driving along, and he happens to look out the back window of the car and sees a Sasquatch cross the, street, cross the road behind them. Now, we see a lot of roadside sightings where the Sasquatch crosses in front of the car. How many sightings get missed because the Sasquatch waited a couple of minutes to let the car pass before it crossed the road? I mean, it, it makes you wonder. Just how often these creatures come into contact with human beings and humans don't even recognize it. They don't see them. Yeah. They don't see them for whatever reason, either because, you know, the Sasquatch has an ability to manipulate people's minds or because they're just sneaky. So it's just lots of fun to think about. Talk about a bummer though, at least for me, not that I would remember if it wiped my memory. I'm just saying that, you know, you finally get to see a Sasquatch and it just goes, eh, I wasn't here. You didn't see me. And then you, you don't remember. What a bummer. Yeah, he uses the Jedi mind trick on you yeah. and you forget. What a punk. That would suck. I'd be like, listen, I'll bring you back a hot dog. Just let me remember you, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm more than willing to leave offerings in the woods <laughs> if you will just let me see you. Yeah, I'd be like, listen, I'll fashion a fishing line if I have to, if you prefer fish, but let me go find something at camp. I'm sure there's something you would really, really enjoy. Well, yeah, 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 I'm sure hot dogs probably would work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you WT, bet. this book is, we could probably actually do like four episodes and there's still plenty to read, but I I just really encourage anybody interested in Bigfoot to go and get this book. It it really does run the gamut with all kinds of sightings. And of course, it's split up into sections of Canada. And that way you guys can do your own research too, if you would, if you would so choose 
But I, I thank you so much for coming on, and I want you to let everybody know, of course, before we go, where to find you and your books. Thank you. And again, uh, I should mention the book is is kind of set up in a, sort of an unusual way. It's it's set up by provinces, so you know you can look up your province and see a, a selection of of Sasquatch incidents or episodes uh, in your province. Then I did a whole section on roadside sightings, and then I got into the, the to the stranger stuff. So there's a little bit of everything for everybody there. A lot of the sightings, like I said, come across as you know. It's like you saw a bear in the woods, except it was a Sasquatch. Some of the sightings are pretty strange. There's sightings in the book about uh, Sasquatches that walk off into the woods and disappear. <laughs> so, you know, as I said, yeah, what I wanted to get across in this book was that uh, I'm perfectly okay with, with there being a, a uh, undiscovered North American primate, but I think there's some high strangers attached to this critter too. And, and that needs to be paid attention to as well. For those that are interested, the book is available on Amazon, both as uh, you know, as Kindle uh, or as an ebook, and uh, you know, as a as a paperback. I am on uh, Facebook, uh, WT Watson author page. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter. I think it's WT Watson two, uh, if I remember right. And then uh, I'm on Instagram as Curunir C U R U N I R. Six zero, so I'm always happy to hear from people. Um, I'm starting to occasionally hear from folks who want to tell me stories, which makes me happy too. And uh, that's about that. Heck yeah, let's go book two, Sasquatch Canada. Well, like I said, I have a huge database uh, or set of notes, uh, stories that that didn't make it into this book. So um, that's entirely possible. And as I said too. You know, there continue to be Sasquatch encounters up here, you know, as I'm sitting here, probably. This is a, a land of vast forest and, you know, habitat that's just rife for, for large mammals. Um, so, you know, if Sasquatch is a flesh and blood creature, you know, it's it would be happily coexisting alongside brown bears, and black bears and cougars and, and all kinds of other large predators. So uh, there's certainly the biodiversity up here to be able to support a species like that. Yes, more people having experiences that, uh, at least for the most part, in most cases, uh, we're very jealous of. Right, WT? Yeah, yeah. I I, I had wish that I had had more of an opportunity to go out and, and sit in the woods. Uh, while I was writing this, um, I'm working full time and you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So I don't have as much time to get out as I'd like, but, you know, between writing books and working full time, you know, that's, that's about all I got time for. Yeah, it, it sure sneaks up on you. That's for sure. Well, thanks again, WT mm-hmm. Sasquatch Canada beyond British Columbia. Go get it guys. And, uh, WT can't wait to have you on next time. Can't wait for the next book. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'm so-and-so. I was given this name by my parents. I've been to such and such a college. I've done these things in my profession. I produce a little bark. Buddha says, forget it. That's not true. That's some story. That's all gone. That's all past. I want to see the real you you are now. Well, nobody knows who that is. Because we don't uh, know ourselves. 
except through listening to our echoes and consulting our memories. But then there's a real evil, and that again leads us back to this question. Uh, who are you? That is the real We shall see how they play with this exam by the cohorts to get you to come out of your shell and find out who you really are.
sir, when you settled down in the train to read your newspaper and uh, so on, you are not the same person who uh, a little while ago left the platform. If you think you are, you are linking your moments up in the chain. And this is what binds you to the wheel of birth and death. But when you know that every moment in which you are is the only moment, this comes into Zen, the master will say to somebody, oh, get up and walk across the room. And he comes back and says, where are your footprints? They've gone. So where are you? Who are you? When we are asked who we are, we usually give a kind of recitation of a history. Straight, 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 straight.